Hi there, everybody. Happy holidays from the cloud-based mayhem. Hope you had a great holiday and uh, cool to bring you this show just right after Christmas. And hopefully we're all thinking about flying gliders instead of uh, presents. Uh, just a reminder, we've got a few more days left of our Garmin uh, discount for an inReach device, an SE or Explorer, uh, that it lasts until the 30th. So we still got three more days if we get this one out on time, which we're planning on doing. Uh, use the code GAVIN2017, lowercase or uppercase altogether, GAVIN2017 when you go to checkout, and that'll get you 10% off an inReach device. Uh, as I said on the last show, inReach is just far, far, far superior to a spot. I know it's a little bit more expensive, but it is your safety. Uh, having that two-way communication is really, really critical when it comes to anything bad going down. Or uh, So I think you just you owe it to your loved ones to get one. Make sure you have one every time you fly or you're farting around in the uh, backcountry. Super important piece of device. I don't go anywhere without one. Uh, this show... As y'all know, I was just down in Mexico f flying in the pre-PWC with Miguel Gutierrez and his amazing team down in Zapoltec, which was a new place to fly. Talked about that quite a bit on the last show, uh, but I was able to sit down with uh, kind of a hero of mine, a guy named Phil Glutz, uh, who I became aware of uh, looking at his tracks, uh, Bruce Marks. Uh, one of my uh, XOP supporters and flying buddy for many, many, many years, uh, started seeing Phil's track logs on X Contest years ago. And uh, he lives in Zermatt, up right near the Matterhorn, which is kind of the, uh, it's kind of like the Telluride of the Alps. It's like the Box Canyon, if you've never been. Of course, you, you know the Matterhorn, you've seen pictures, but it's, you know, backside of Mount Rosa, some of the highest mountains in the Alps by far. You're just across the Rhone from, uh, the Eiger and the Jungfrau and the Monk and really trick, tricky place to fly, tough place to fly. Um, and often one of the kind of the main FAI waypoints when you're doing the, the Fisch FAI, but to start in Zermatt is really cool because you're, you're starting off a glacier, you're starting super tall and uh, you fly down kind of the east facing side in the morning. You can, you can leave there really early and be down to Visp. Uh, before the day's even really on. And so it's a great place to start triangles from, but just very few people live up there and fly across country from there. And so uh, Phil and some of his buddies, Chris Manford, and some of those guys have been putting up some really cool lines there for years. Um, and so I wanted to talk to him about that, which we did, but I also wanted to talk to him about flying tandems. We've had a lot of pilots on the show who, of course, fly tandems, but I've never really tapped into that angle of things. And so I thought that'd be really interesting. And then, uh, not really reluctantly, but Phil had a pretty bad accident uh, about a year ago. And I didn't know this, but Pal Tackett, who was on the show ways back, talked about a really bad accident that he had. He was living with Phil at the time when that went down. So I didn't know that. And this is not a downer. We don't get into the downside of an accident and recovery and all that kind of stuff. But what we do to get into is just kind of a warning about complacency because it happened on a day that uh, everything was totally perfect. It was not a gnarly day. Uh, it was just one of these things that happened because you're really almost even too good of friends with the other pilot that was in the air and they were trying to avoid a midair. So some really good lessons there and some really cool mental lessons from coming back from something like that. Uh, Phil's totally chasing it hard. Didn't have much trouble at all coming back from that. And uh, But he gives some really good thoughts on how that whole process goes. And so I think you're gonna enjoy that aspect as well. But Phil's been flying since the very beginning of paragliding and uh, 
it went from being an engineer to making a life out of paragliding, which is uh, his journey is really cool. So I think you're going to enjoy it. So uh, without further delay, please enjoy this great conversation live from Mexico uh, with Phil Glatz. Phil, it's pretty cool to be doing this live here in Mexico at the uh, pre-World Cup. We've been having some awesome days of flying fast around a really cool new site here in Zapolitec. And uh, you and I didn't know each other personally before this trip, but I've been following your flights in Zermatt forever because bruce you know my uh, ex-op supporter is always going like look at what this dude's doing look at what these dudes doing and, and it's been uh so this is a real honor for me to kind of get some some background and some history i thought a kind of maybe a cool place to start out would be for those that don't know much about the alps or that don't know about zermont uh just you know to be a local flying in Zermatt is, is not the same as like Annecy, you know, there's not that many of you guys up there. And, uh, and so I thought you, can you paint us, uh, uh, an audio visual picture of, of where, where you guys are operating, what you're doing. And I know it's just not you sending good flights, but it's your whole life and your whole business there. So give those people that haven't been to the Matterhorn. Um, can you describe that area? Cause it's pretty unique. I, um, Kind of by accident, I ended up in in a little valley that has the most iconic peak in the Alps, the Matterhorn. And uh, Zermatt's this incredible place. It's a tourist town, but it's 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 the highest part of the Alps. There's actually 29 peaks in the Zermatt Valley that are over 4,000 meters, and 40 something peaks in the surrounding valleys that are over 4,000 meters. So. The Mont Blanc is a massif, and it's got uh, it's got a few peaks surrounding it. But the the Matterhorn Valley is is the highest area for flying. It's it's kind of up there. It's extreme. It's it's the narrow valley. It's the end of a valley. It's got strong wind systems. Of course, we get strong valley winds in the springtime. Uh, we're very susceptible to south south wind. We kind of have a local fern effect as soon as the the wind turns southwest on us uh, in the winter time. If it uh, or any time, if the wind is slightly from the east, we get a we get a nasty wind affecting in one of our takeoffs, and the rest of the valley can be calm. But but um, we've got a howling wind on on the our main takeoff. Yeah, it's 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 big mountain flying, and uh, with a postage stamp for for a landing stuck on the side of the. Of a, of a valley next to the railway station. Yeah, your landing is just silly. When I was training there for the 2015 uh, race uh, for the X-Alps, I, I ended up hooking up with uh, Michael Vichy. We happened to just be flying there on the same day because it was a pretty decent day, and we both landed together at that little postage stamp you're talking about. And I was like, wow, this is where you guys do tandems and stuff. <laughs> it's tiny. It's it's fine if there's uh, if there's wind, if the wind is consistent. Um, and we get strong valley winds, which is, which is fine. You can land on a postage stamp. The only thing we have to deal with then is turbulence because just in front of the landing, the, the valley narrows. So we get turbulence, um, from that and the, and it's up on the side of a hill slightly, uh, above a four meter wall. So we get rotor, uh, rotating off the, off the train tracks up onto the landing. So you can get dumped. Uh, despite your best efforts to have a safe landing, 
So why are you there? <laughs> it sounds terrifying. <laughs> yeah, why am I there? Uh, that's a long story, but uh, well, cool. Well, we'll yeah. we'll get into it. I yeah. I I, uh, I wanted to just express on the listener that if you haven't been to that area, like it's it's a place I've flown through a lot now, and even in in this race, the 2017 race, because. We didn't have to go. Typically, we go north of it because we're on the way to Mont, Mont Blanc, right. you know. And this year, we the cylinder is always five k because you can't really make it like a top landing. The Matterhorn doesn't really suit that, and uh, and so this year we we came on the south side, and uh, it's yeah. amazing how dense everything is there. You know, like Domodossola is right over the. I mean, the Sass Valley is right there. There's a Matt Valley, and but just on the other side, it's a whole other world. One, you're, you you literally are in another country. You're in Italy, and uh, and there's four big valleys on that side, and it all just compresses in there, doesn't it? I mean, to me, it's still a place that just demands massive amount of respect. Yeah, and uh, I'm still learning about it. Still learning about these these passes, high mountain passes, and the and the valleys, and and the different wind systems, and how they affect how they're affected by the mountains. It's yeah. We get constantly surprised, as you know. Uh, you get we- the weather forecasting is getting better and better, but uh, local effects are so local. We fly, we fly in weather and wind systems that are that that require knowledge of what's going to happen from here to five hundred meters away, and there's there's no there's no forecast that's going to give you that. So we're constantly surprised, despite our best efforts to. To understand what the wind and the weather is going to do every day. Is it a is it a numbers game? Is it a, is it the kind of thing where you know after all these years you've you know you've you've got it pretty figured out, but things are always a little bit surprising. I mean, I would imagine you know to me it's like you couldn't put yourself in a trickier place in the Alps. Really, I, I don't know of one. There maybe there are, but uh, you, you've put yourself in a place that is is super demanding. Do you? Do you dig that, or is it still kind of like a little bit? Uh, oh. No, it's it's. Uh, I've made it my home. It's like uh, when I first started flying solo before I got my tandem license. Uh, I start flying in that valley. Um, I kind of made an effort, but it, I didn't. I wasn't thinking about that at the time. But I just go and fly, and I go and fly up uh, up through these peaks and around this valley and I, I made it my own. You know, it's my revere, like an eagle defending its territory. I, uh, I, and I tell my students or people I'm, let's say, in inverted commas, mentoring, I'm like, you got to go and own it. Go and fly. you got to fly in those cool eyes. you got to fly over those peaks and, and you're not going to feel comfortable unless you've been there so many times. You're like, this is, this is what I do. This is where I belong. Mm. And I spent... Uh, a lot of time, a lot of time doing that, just enjoying the altitude before I ever got into comps or acro or, or, or high performance uh, gliders or anything like that. So I just went and bimbled around these, these incredible peaks. So yeah. y- y- we, we talked a little bit before we started this going, you and I have some shared history in Wollongong, Australia. Um, how'd you go from, and your, your accent's uh, giving you away here, but uh, how'd, you, how'd you go from, were you a pilot in Oz? G- give, us the, uh, give us the resume version of your, of your flying history. How did, how'd you end up in Zermatt? I actually started flying 
I retired from my engineering career and went traveling. And um, my friend and I always had this dream to to do a season, be ski bums in Chamonix. At the time, the Greg Stump movies were coming out and yes. and there was Scott Schmidt and Glenn Plague hucking cliffs and doing cool wires. And we thought we thought we were pretty pretty hot skiers, which we, we are in no way at the, that the level. You, that you'd learned in Kosciuszko? <laughs> <laughs> we had a little club called the Out of Bounds Club and, and I didn't spend any time. I spent very little time skiing on piste in Australia. Really? I'll tell you that. We we made a point oh, of going skiing breakable crust through, yeah, through yeah. gnarly yeah. eucalyptus snow gums, right? <laughs> we could ski some pretty difficult stuff, but then anyway... Yeah, we got to Chamonix. We had a fantastic year, and uh, my friend saw this this advert for a, a paragliding, uh, learn to paraglide course, basic beginners course in a place called Plan Planju, just out of the Chamonix Valley. Okay, and it was like discounted for some reason, and I'd been thinking about this for for ah since paragliding began. Fortunately or unfortunately, I I didn't get into it when I was in Australia. I, I was too busy with with engineering and and surfing and windsurfing and playing music, I was I was either practicing or gigging like five times a week or something. My my life was full, and I kind of knew and I suspected that how, if I ever touched paragliding, how did you gonna, know about paragliding at that point? Was it from Oz or from your time in Chamonix? No, it was from from Australia. I didn't. Um, I'd seen and I'd seen them up at Stamble Park, obviously, and I'd seen that. The hang gliders guys from years back launching from uh, Mount Kira just above my house. Yeah. Sadly, that takeoff's uh, no longer used. What a what a tragedy! Yeah. Amazing place to fly for hangies. But there was a Swiss guy who was running a restaurant called the Eagle's Nest in Threadbow, and he Threadbow. actually yeah. yeah. Now Threadbow was the site of the. The was it the first world championships of paragliding? Really? They probably had spot landing competitions or something yeah. hundred years ago. And he had And a, you're you're and it's also kind of the headwaters of the biggest river in Oz, right? Isn't that what's the river there? The Murray. The Murray, uh, yeah. I'm not sure. Maybe somewhere that pass. There. I think you're right. Yeah. Just above maybe is a dead horse gap just above yeah. Tripo, which is uh, that side maybe goes down to ooh. You're uh, testing my geography there. Maybe. Threadbow's a cool right. little but town. Threadbow's got some good vertical. And, and yeah. if you, to get good skiing in, in, in Australia, you need to spend a season. Otherwise, it's potluck. Yeah. But anyway, Heinz Gluer, this Swiss guy, had this paraglider uh, hanging up in the ceiling of his restaurant in, uh, in the Eagle's Nest in, in Threadbow. And, and uh, we always got talking because... We somehow let slip that my brother and I, and my sister as well, we um, we have Swiss uh, Swiss nationality because through through dad. Okay. And uh, so we'd go and visit Heinz and kind of got chatting to him a few times, and he'd call us the ah the Swiss mafia is here. <laughs> so he kind of knew knew us vaguely, and but my brother and I were interested in in learning to fly and. We, I we I swapped numbers with with Heinz and we were going to do a course with him at some stage, but logistically it just it just never worked out. And looking back, I'm in a sense I'm quite happy that I started 
to learn when I did because things developed so far from that point that I'm kind of happy I wasn't one of those magnificent men in their flying machines, you know, experimenting with 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 stuff that was nutty, nutty and deadly. The stories you hear, the war stories of of like Miguel talking about building building deltas out of bits of PVC tube and plastic. I mean, come on. Oh, it's absurd. It's crazy what those guys went through to give us yeah. what we have. Isn't it? it was incredible. So paragliding developed along and I kept on with my engineering career for quite a few years. And I did this course in Planjou in Chamonix. And uh, that was cool. I had seven flights under my belt. Thought I was amazing. Man. Shit. <laughs> I'll never forget. We had we had two days of practice, and then I think one or two days of bad weather, and and um, and uh, Philippe, the the trainer, didn't speak much English, and we thought we we came back after a break and we said we go to a training. He's like, no, 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 decollage, take off, like what? And the, the three of us who were doing this course were like jaws dropped. Okay, try to remember everything you learned a few days ago, because as you know, when you when you learn a skill. Man, you need to repeat that. And I'm trying to think. Give okay. me a year here. Is 99? 99, yeah. Okay. Spring okay. of 99. Yep. And uh, I'll never forget. You, it's one of those those images that seared into your into your brain. I'm a forgetful person. I have a memory like a goldfish, but there are certain things that you will never, ever forget. And that's standing, standing on the takeoff. You're clipped in. You've checked everything 15 times. The start helper is on the, on the start. Um, you've got the little wind flag showing the wind. Everything's perfect, and you know it's perfect. And the guy in front of you says, "Okay, Phil, you can you can go now." And um, you know that too because you've checked the wind fifteen times. And, but you know that when you take that first step, that's it. It's got to flow. It all happens, and it all happens in this in this instant. And then you're in the air, and you just you just let out this scream and. Like wow, I'm actually flying. This is this is for real now, and uh, and the shock of it, you know, wore off a uh, short time later, and and I was like totally relaxed, saying, "This is where I belong. This is oh, this is so what I want to do." And uh, yeah, the, that the was 1999. 99. We got to veer off into this. Why do engineers like this sport so much? Because they're they're ubiquitous. There's so many engineers that fly. Yeah, it's funny. I, I don't know whether um, I think engineering probably and the, the geekiness goes together with with understanding flying and the aerodynamics and, and and stuff, but probably more so with with fixed wing and and powered flight. The whole business of checks and and um, and the methodicalness. Yeah, yeah, that that fits together probably with an engineer's brain. For me, uh, I was kind of, I was interested in flying from, from as a, since I was a kid, I was building balsa gliders. And back in the day, you couldn't buy little radio controlled gliders for the price you can now. It's incredible. I used to just build models, that, that gliders that just, you'd throw them off the hill and hope they flew in a straight line and balsa just, you they crash and you break a wing and you go home and repair it and yeah i was building gliders and and uh i built my own two-stringer kite and stuff like that so i was 
I had this this passion for flying before I was even an engineer. Do engineers make good pilots? I hope so. I think so. I find that you know, especially at these comps and stuff, you 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 know, you get to know people a little bit more and stuff. And I, I find that paragliders go up and they go down. I think it also really fits people's personality. I mean, I think we're all, in a sense, maybe a little, I won't say manic, but it's like it just fits who we are somehow. And and it it just seems like there's a lot of engineers. So I've, I've often wondered if it's because I'm not an engineer. The, the math is not my strength. And I, and I've often wondered if it's like, a, if it's one of these things that's a, you know, if you're an engineer, you're really analytic and you're really inside your brain. And maybe this is a way where you can get out of it, or maybe it's a break, maybe, or maybe it's more, it's just more I don't that think intensity so. I, that people that you like about it. I think you bring that into the sport. I don't think you go to, to escape it. Um, engineers are generally, uh, from my experience, uh, a lot of them that, well, they're highly in intelligent i'm not yeah. necessarily putting myself in that <laughs> in that box but but um very self-reliant very self-assured mm. and i had to you know i've dealt with that um through my previous from my pre previous life as an engineer so um and paragliding is one of those sports i think like scuba diving you have to be uh you have to have a level of self-confidence uh that matches your situation uh too confident and obviously that that can kill you but if it gets serious and you're up in the air yeah. and uh you've got to you got to bring yourself down no one else can help you and uh the clown on the end of the radio so <laughs> i'm the- putting myself in that position now yeah. as an instructor he's only the the guy on the end of the radio he can he's got a limited ability to help you when you even as a student so so right from the start of your paragliding career let's say um you have to be comfortable with kind of being alone and i think engineers are they probably have more so than others they're not they they get by in their careers certainly uh, they don't have to be the most social people in the world they have a task to do they have problems to solve and they're good at problem solving that's what definitely what good engineers do, and that's what paragliding is, isn't it? I mean, it, when, it, when it you're is. Really shit, you're, you got to solve the problem. You can't hit the stop button. That's it. I wonder if that's it. And yeah. scuba diving, as an example, is the same. Yeah, if, if right. things get desperate, you got to stay cool and calm and and sort things out for yourself. Buddy can kind of help you with, with scuba diving. We don't have a buddy system who can give us a wing, yeah. so we're maybe one step further along the self reliance line than than those guys, but. Yeah, so I think engineers, they don't fly for escape. They, of course, you know, you've got to love, you love flying. You've got to love being, defying gravity. Maybe because we, we spent all that time studying physics and stuff. You're doing what you shouldn't be doing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah we should be up here, but it works. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is an engineering feat, isn't it? It's, it's a marvel. I wonder where it's going to go. We're, we're jumping ahead here because there's a few things you've already said that I want to come back to, and we're not nearly done with your history. But what do you think, you know, is now that you're instructing, tell me about the perfect student and maybe the opposite end of that. Like, how do you, how do you know when someone's going to be, they come to you for the first time, they've never flown. How do you know if they're going to, can you already kind of tell, like, this person's got probability here, whether good or bad. 
Are there, are there some signs, you know, you, you and Chris were talking about, you know, that you're tan, you, know, you hate the stereotype, but your best tandem passengers are from Korea. They're just stoked and happy and stoked. You know, is there, do you see that in, in students as well? Yeah, I don't teach many students. You could probably ask the guys, my, my colleagues from, from Interlock and they'd be able to tell you more. I, I fly thousands of, of tandem passengers, so I'm allowed to, <laughs> to be judgmental there. Um, but yeah, uh, I guess students, a good student has a, an air of like that, like, like I said about the engineers, they have at least an air of self-confidence Usually, a, they have a sporting ability. You, you see how they behave. They they normally have some motor skills. Like you just you see that right from from the start. Like pulling a wing out of a bag. Who's going to be a problem student and and right. who isn't? Interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. Interesting. You know, my best student is uh, is my partner Anouk. Hi Anouk. <laughs> but she's she's a classic. She's um calm incredibly sporty and and balanced but she's one of those people who whatever she puts her hand to sport she's just she's just she's just balanced and and gets into it yeah you can you you can see it coming when when you get certain students who you just need to steer them into a maybe another sport yeah Yeah. so maybe this is not for you take up swimming yeah Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. Uh, back to the Alps and back to specifically where you live. So when I was, you know, when I was learning, and, and we started going to the Alps for the first time, it's mostly Bruce, a fellow Australian, good friend of yours, and someone who's been following your stuff for a long time. We always gravitated toward the fiches of the Alps. You know, big mountain sites uh, where things happen faster and it's bigger and it's older maybe it's you know but also way more risky you know there's a lot of people that go to the alps and fly and they're you know they're going to stick with the laranias and you know places that are one you can see farther and and you can see stuff coming and you've maybe got more time and things don't happen so extreme in other words you know like the more the maritime alps are just lower you, you, you like you said you're in the biggest of the big and things happen there violently and fast what is it about your personality and what is it about your um and like i said i'm, I'm putting you on the spot i'm not you know but there really is a huge difference there why do you think it suits your personality to be where you are yeah Zermatt, um i didn't I didn't choose Zermatt. Zermatt chose me. I guess it does. It's it's it suits me now, having progressed to the, to the level I've progressed. But I've never. But I was never like incredibly confident. Not I'm not a super confident person per se. But but over the years I've become. Now I can say uh, I'm a super confident paragliding pilot. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah. I, I I arrived in Zermatt because a friend of mine had coincidentally le- started learning paragliding at the same time in another country. I <laughs> uh, was already living in, in Zermatt for a few years and he was raving about it. And uh, I'd never done a, I'd never spent a summer in the Alps or um, flying and I wasn't getting I wasn't getting enough flying at the time. so I moved to Zermatt. Um, Is this from Oz? No, I was I was going back to I was doing seasons at the time, skiing in 
St. Moritz and teaching in St. Moritz and, and in Perisher, actually, in Australia. So I was getting very little flying time in and and it was bugging me. So I went to, I moved to Zermatt because it was because a friend of mine said, you got to come here. And so I spent that first summer with a, with a little bar job and, and flying every day. And when you say flying every day, tandems or just no, for fun? No, no, this is way before I had, I had oh, like, okay. I don't know, maybe, well, less than 100 flights when I arrived in Zermatt. And, and yeah, I was a real rookie. Uh, I remember just, I remember going up to, to Rotterdam, um, our main kind of takeoff, uh, the first time with by myself, not having tandems there or, or my mate Ronnie, just being there first time on this on this 3,000-meter peak, thinking, ooh. You know, but I've been there enough times that that, that uh, I knew the conditions were okay, and I, I, I guess I'd probably checked in with the tandems before that. And I just nibbled away at it. I, I didn't know I didn't know any better. I suppose. I mean, yeah, it's not it's not it's it's not as though I I looked around the Alps and said I'm going to choose Zermatt um, to to progress my flying or to start a business or anything like that it's a it's a series of coincidences that brought me to Zermatt and it's rugged high mountain terrain and it, it, it's not it's not beginner terrain and I don't teach many students for that reason nobody comes to Zermatt or I won't I won't take a student um, on a week's course in Zermatt to learn yeah. to fly I'll send them I'll send them to Interlaken for sure because the conditions are, and the p- potential to fly is so much higher uh, you know, we teach, we fly in the mornings with students when the conditions are calm enough to allow us to do maybe one or two flights, and then it's that's it for them. And what is it about flying in Zermatt that that, that suits me? I, I guess through a long, slow process, I've I've become so familiar with the the terrain that I feel like I belong in those mountains. I I feel like I'm yeah I'm at home. Up in those high peaks, and and I don't, I don't forget, or I, I, I try to remember when I'm up there um, that I'm flying. It's such a privilege to be there. I'm flying stuff on an afternoon where I might might not have a tandem that that people dream about in their to to achieve in their paragliding careers, and, and I'll go and blow off an afternoon to go for a buzz around <laughs> some four thousand meter peaks. It's it's crazy. Well, how did you, how did you start putting it together in terms of XC then? Because I mean, it's man, it's a bold place to start sending it from. Were were you? Were did you really? You know, did you uh, grind the brass tacks there? Did you? Yep. Did, yeah. So yep. you had this. You had kind of hundred flights. You moved to Zermatt, and then that all. I'd um, actually. I think the first first proper or relatively big cross-country flight I did was in Turkey. A guy I know there, Sammy, Sammy Champion. Sammy took, uh, he kind of took me under his wing a little bit, pardon the pun, but uh, he was he was running a little course for some some of his potential cross-country pilots, uh, comp pilots in a place called Zulu, which is a little out-of-the-way uh, mountain uh, north of the main place that everyone goes to, which is Aludinez, Babado, yeah. and I'd be, I was there on a holiday to to Aludinez, 
and uh, he took me to this place and um, I ended up, it was the first time I had a proper task to fly and and I'd never really flown cross country before, but I'd flown quite a bit of thermal by that stage, just around the Zermatt Valley. And I ended up flying 50 Ks and it was like one of my first cross country flights. And I flew over this high range and landed in the middle of nowhere and, and got some crazy way too easy retrieve back to back to uh and that that was it i was absolutely hooked on mm. on cross-country flying but um in zermatt yeah i just chipped away at it i started flying uh, around the end of the valley not going past the past the landing really uh and then i don't know little by little i just uh i was trying to get out of the valley I guess it took longer than than most people's progression because I was on my own. There was no one else. No one else was flying cross country in Zermatt. I was, I was, they were either flying tandems or not flying much. And uh, yeah, I just after I tried to fly out of the valley, and then I was think I was flying a back in the day a DHV one two glider, and uh, I'd get to the end of the valley a few times and I tried to cross VISP and I, I always I thought this is impossible I kept bombing out in VISP it was like three four five times I just I'd make it as far as VISP which is quite easy at the right time of day yeah. uh, if you leave it a little bit I mean I wasn't trying to launch for the first thermals I was just trying to trying to fly out of that valley and cross the valley and just um, going down that east facing side yeah, and the west was, side yeah. it was a long time before I actually connected with uh, was lift on the other side, and that was it. That was like the this massive barrier of being oh, broken. Kidding, yeah. yeah, exactly. And uh, of course, my flying got better. Uh, I I got onto high performance gliders. Gliders improved, and it it's become it's become easier. Mm. It's definitely. You've done some monster triangles out of there. What's still <laughs> left to be done? What do you got? What are you and Chris <laughs> looking at? You know what? What if you could just if you had the perfect day tomorrow and it's July 10th, you got long day, you'd start oh, early in the morning at like 8.30 off the, the what's it called? The rut? Off the climb Matterhorn. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Then go yeah, down yeah. the east facing side and cross over and go where? Or would you just lob over the other side and go down into Italy? I could tell you, Gavin, but I have to kill you. Ah, <laughs> excellent. Can we do it together? <laughs> Absolutely. That's the plan. Uh we we got all sorts of plans when we're bored. Chris and I are uh, uh, swapping um, swapping emails with uh, with the latest triangle that we've we've come up with on XC Planner. Thanks, Tom. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks, Tom. And, exactly. Um, yeah. So um, we're pretty lucky. We can we can launch from three thousand eight hundred and eighty meters. Yeah. Uh, but it's glacier and snow covered, and on a big day for for, for triangles. Um, you don't want any wind, so that's that's tricky. Yeah. But uh, Chris is talking about staying staying overnight in uh, either climb Matterhorn and and hiking the Brighthorn in the morning. So we got an extra few hundred meters, um, and heading east. Okay. Or uh, somehow scamming a helicopter right up to the Margarita Hut, saying we do some filming or something. Spend the night there, and. And be even higher and 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 closer to the to the Macanyago Valley or closer to Domodossola. Uh Yeah, 
so we've got we've got a few plans um well what's another the, one what's the, the okay so the big flight i did we can we'll talk yeah, about that later about is, that. is is the climb matterhorn to to mont blanc to nissan and, and then back. back over and you went right over the spine like somewhere around the young frau or where uh, did you come back into uh what's the really on, on your side the uh you know across from visp and down down valley like visp Sion, what's that? Loikerbad. Did you come back into Loikerbad when you did that from from Nissan? Uh, no, I came over um, Kandersteg. Ah, I think I came over the Lotsberg somewhere. Even more stunning. Oh, that was Kandersteg's uh, one of the most beautiful places on earth. Yeah. yeah, that was two hundred and thirty, two hundred and thirty-one K triangle FAI. Um, so the uh, the plan will be to just do that again because it was so cool. That's an amazing uh, but flight. Look at look at the turn points and try to expand that. Maybe um, we're looking at. I don't know whether it's going to work, but to fly like due south. Uh, I don't know whether it's going to be too stable in the in the mornings in the in the kind of the I suppose the four Alps down there on the other side of the valley from Iosta. Mm. Uh, maybe in the springtime this will work, but then maybe you have to fly south of Grand Paradiso, and then and then head west into France, and then come up the Chamonix Valley. Uh, you can probably help Ooh, me out with this wicked. in terms of the the national parks and the and the problems with that. And I've been studying that a bit, and that looks that looks complicated, if not impossible. Um, the no, thing you just, about you just don't land. Yeah, there is that. <laughs> exactly. Um, you can fiddle with the the triangles. Um, I've come to realize with the with the percentage of closure. If you're going to fly a record, then you need to be within a certain uh, distance of your start point. But if you just if you want to fly an FAI, now we're, we're kind of opening up that that little wedge that moves around when you move your turn point around to see how far I have to get or how far away I can fly and what angles I can get that my landing, um, the, realistic, the realistic landing is still an FAI and then any, anything af after that is a bonus. So if you head south from Klein and then west and then you come through Chamonix, you've done some monster triangle by the time you hit Martigny. Yeah. And it's in the, it's a triangle. And then if you fly. It's you, all just it, a bonus. It, yeah. If you head back up to this from there and then home, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking. Yeah. Two, 300, like 300 K triangles. Yeah. So. Proper big triangle and the biggest of the Alps. That would be, that would be pretty amazing. And the other option is, yeah, like from what, what Chris is, we're using that extra altitude is to fly east. Across Macanago, Domodossola, Cento Valley. Mm -hmm. If you're in there, then then it's all it's going to be it's going to be amazing. You pick uh, what's you fly all the way to Locarno, and then and then diagonally up back into. Ooh, I'm not sure how far you have to go. I have to look at my old. Go tag the Eiger and come home. <laughs> yeah, it's something like that. Yeah, Imagine that. yeah, that'd be ripping. That'd be so, really good. Yeah, there's the potential like. Is is there? Wings are getting better. We're getting better. We're getting bolder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Watch this space. Don't yeah. you think that's? Uh, I, I I I've said this so many times, but I don't you dig that about this sport that the you know that 
even you're in the mecca of paragliding in the world and there's still so many possibilities you know i mean it just feels like we're barely tapping it you know there's just so i mean where i where i'm from yeah. at home it's just a joke how much there is to do you know it's, just, it's overwhelming yeah. even you know but for for us so switzerland's a playground for paragliding in terms of retrieves and it's just it's just so easy getting up a mountain and 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 getting home again uh for you guys where you fly that's just it's a little the whole thing's tiger country yeah a little more of a crazy a little more of a gruel oxygen and all of this stuff yeah the alps is is incredible and the potential just just grows where would you um you know for people that are thinking about you know coming over the alps for the first time this summer what well, what's the perfect itinerary? Give me an give you know if you if it assuming the weather's epic over the whole thing you've got a nice high pressure system and there's you know there's no rain and not much wind um, you know like give me your ten favorite sites. Where, wow. where I wish you, I wish I'd flown so many sites. I'm a this is the thing about um, running a tandem business. Um, you know this is one of the reasons I do big flights from. From Zermatt is because, uh, well, it's where I live. I can get out the front door early in the morning and I can go up a mountain. Uh, I don't have to travel the day before or something. So uh, that's limited my my uh, experience in terms of you know all the all the fantastic, amazing fly sites there are in the Alps. Um, you know, but someone who's never flown the Alps before, you you got to think places like Ansi and Interlaken. Just give you that incredible view with the with the mellow four alps. So you've got nice takeoff conditions. The only thing you've got to deal with is traffic uh, in in both of those places. But the potential to do some some little little circuits with incredible white capped four four thousand plus uh, white capped peaks in the background is 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 amazing. Um, so you, you probably want to work into it with, with one of those sites. You've probably got better ideas of the first sites to go to, um, fierce, you've got to go to just because it's, it's, yeah. it's Mecca. You know, I had to go to Chamonix because 9,000 vertical feet, dude, yeah. steep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> just had to be part of that. Yeah. Skiing. So fierce is, um, um, and you can fierce goms. So, so heading from from heading east from Fish, that's for the less experienced pilots. It's probably it's a great it's a great flight. You can probably do what is it fifty k's up to up to the fur up and back. Yeah. Uh, you've got a big wide valley. Uh, they've they've even made the Munster Airport uh, airspace skinny, so you don't have to. You can land pretty much on the side of the valley with it. You can land anywhere. Rolling fields. It's and uh, it's a series of spines that you can hop across or you can stay up in the back range and fly right along the ridge. Uh, that, that, that flight is, is the relatively easy and a classic and, yeah. and fun. Once you head down into the main ballet, then things get serious. Yeah. Depending on what the wind is doing, it's a, ooh. Then yeah, there's spots in the road in the Rhine that can to, get pretty wild. Yeah, yeah exactly. pretty wild for sure. Um, so we've had, we've had a lot of tandem pilots on the show, but I've never asked any tandem questions. Uh, let, let's get back to your history a little bit. How did that all 
get going? It, was that the was that the end of your engineering career? <laughs> yeah, my engineering <laughs> career had, had been put on standstill, and it was I was kind of you know the mining boom was kicking off in Australia. This is uh, twenty years ago, and uh, part of me was thinking, you know, do I want to go to Western Australia and when cleaners are earning a hundred grand or something, it was ridiculous. And yeah. a small part of me was thinking, should I just go there and earn some money? And I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. This, uh, in the meantime, my friend, uh, Ronnie, Ronnie Schneider had, um, the other Swiss Australian, he was, a, he was a bit ahead of me, uh, with his tandem training and, and I kind of, he was the friend that brought you to Zermatt. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, so I came to Zermatt just as he was getting his tandem license. And um, while I was, I was still progressing really, really slowly, I was still beginning, I had this inner confidence about my flying abilities. And I thought, yeah, I could, I could do this. And uh, so I had that first year, it was 2002, I just I flew and flew and flew. I had, I had to do my, uh, I had some restricted Australian license, I think. So I had to get my Swiss license. I had Which is a little demanding, I understand, isn't it? No, the, 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 the solar license is probably one of the more demanding ones. Okay. The, the, the good thing about it is it's an exam under exam conditions. So they're really friendly guys, but you have to perform in front of strangers, in a, possibly a strange fly site, depending on where you sign up. And um, you have to perform under exam conditions. And that's, that's, a, that's a good thing. And it's... Yeah. The same goes for all the other exams. So I so I did the solo license, and within uh, you're allowed to do the tandem, what was called the tandem B at the time. You have to wait twelve months and have a minimum one hundred and fifty flights or something. So um, I had that within within a few days of twelve months. I I was signed up for the tandem B, and uh, and pretty much. A month or two after the minimum requirement to to do the Taname solo license, I did did that. It's a it's a long long difficult and expensive process. Mm. So um, it was two years of solid flying, and with a little a few odd jobs in between. <laughs> so that one of the. So one of the reasons I've always avoided being a commercial tandem pilot, I fly tandems for fun, but but uh, is that I always hear from tandem pilots like the the number one way to destroy your solo flying, like your uh, your passion, yeah, or, is to do tandems. Is that true? It doesn't well, seem like it with you. You know, maybe maybe Chris and I, I don't know, maybe we're the exceptions to the rule. I I haven't. I'm still learning. Uh, I haven't lost the, the the passion for learning about this sport and improving and progressing. Uh, maybe maybe all these other guys are just better than me and they've just done it all. And uh, ask me in another five years, and uh, maybe I'll give you a different a, a different answer. Is is but, where where you guys do tandems? Is it kind of the churn and burn like an interlocking? You know, or, or no? I mean, you are, are you doing them all day? We're we're doing them all day, but we do. Um, we do a lot less and we get stopped by the weather yeah. a lot more often. Those guys fly 300 days or something a year. And we, I don't know how many, I haven't, I haven't looked, but it's maybe half that. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. We're, 
there are a lot of days or there are a lot of afternoons where we stop because of strong winds and, and turbulence. So we don't risk a, uh, a rough landing. And um, so, yeah, we, we're, we're, we're yo-yoing uh, a lot less than those guys, but we're, uh, it's full on now. Business has picked up and it gets, it gets busier every year, which is a good thing. So, um, yeah, we now we've come to the stage now where, like, I'll look at the weather, I'll study the weather, and I'll consciously take a day off tandem flying. I know it's going to cost me a bomb, uh, but I'll take a day off tandem flying and go fly solo to go fly one of these crazy triangles if the weather's good because I don't want to miss out. Yeah, yeah. So you've still got you've totally got the energy for it, even though you're doing yeah. these tandems. It's not like oh god, I got to go flying. But I do see it. I uh, I, I see that not uh, not in everyone, not in every um, pilot that I know. But um, yeah, it's like it's that it's that saying, isn't it? Don't turn your don't turn your passion into a into a business. And, if, if you you know looking back. Uh, if you had to do it all over again, would you do the same thing? <laughs> what do you mean, my life or <laughs> the flying side of it? Now, if I the flying side of it, um, I wish um, if I was surrounded with some some like minded um, people, kind of pushing their abilities a bit more. Maybe uh, you know, I wish I would have progressed a little a little faster. Mm. Just because uh, you didn't have the mentors and the people flying yeah 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 maybe i maybe i need someone to to say wow you're doing you're doing great now and then you know i just yeah you know paragliding is a solo sport a lot of time you're on your own you you have this amazing experience and you uh you you come home and you know yeah some of the other paragliders might be interested in it but but really you've done it for yourself and it's great to 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 share that share those experiences and 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 the the good and the bad with yeah. with, with a like-minded with a like-minded group of people and uh yeah i didn't really have a lot of that through my whole paragliding career let's say yeah if i i guess if you're in somewhere like fish or interlock with a whole bunch more more pilots you get exposed to that mm. um and the other thing is i didn't really I didn't learn through a school. Uh, I learned, I did my basic training through a school. After that, I was doing bits and pieces here and there with a, this, this instructor and a borrowed glider here and there and everywhere. So, and after that, I was kind of self-taught. <laughs> mm. I, I, I did my solo exam. I was training for my solo um, paragliding license and I was, doing this landing approach because this is a landing approach you had to do. No one really taught me anything about what was involved in the solo license. Ronnie told me the maneuvers I had to do in the time, so I went to trade them. Um, I was doing the landing approach. Someone said you should have, you know, you should have hands up, you should have maximum speed um, so you can flare. Or they didn't explain why. I just I just picked it up. You need, you need to fly you know, maximum speed when you land. So I'd be doing a whole landing approach with zero brakes, doing these big, doing S's and stuff and judging the 
which turned out to be fantastic practice because when I realized, wow, you <laughs> I can, can use slow myself down a little bit. Can, <laughs> I can halve my glide ratio on a school <laughs> wing. <laughs> what a revelation. <laughs> but hey, and then the other thing was um, we, you know, after I, after I did this basic course, I was backpacking around Turkey and, of course, landed in Aludinez and all I could see was a sky full of paragliders. I said goodbye to my friends. I said, I'm staying here. And uh, <laughs> luckily, you know, I, I thought I was brilliant. I had seven high flights. I knew how to fly. And uh, I hooked up with Sky Sports, who a fantastic company. I just lucked out to get probably the most professional tandem company there to look after me. And uh, after two weeks, finally, Murat, the, the boss, uh, he was like, go ground handling. Come on, I want to fly. Let me fly. Let me fly. He's like, one day he just said, Okay, you want to fly? Go fly. Here's a radio. And uh, so up I went in a tandem truck. But, and uh, we used to have this, me and this, uh, this South African guy who was working at the camping there. Uh, we used to have this old eagle, Ethel the eagle, we called it. And uh, we'd we take turns going up in the morning. And, and uh, he'd be like, I'm going to smack that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give her hell today. <laughs> I'm going to do a spiral. You won't believe. Oh, I did the spiral. Like, you know, so we were like pushing each other. And uh, I think the, um, it had quite, it must have quite short lines, but you know, after 10 flights, I was doing spiral dives and everything on this thing, self-taught, just doing them by myself. And uh, so I was quite comfortable with the G forces and stuff and, and uh, came to the Swiss exam. And uh, I had to do a double circle to the right, ending on axis in, in 20 seconds or something. So <laughs> I had it all wired. I pulled a full spiral. I was in the spiral by the first circle. And, uh, and about 90 degrees before the exit, I'd, I'd, I'd ease it off and I'd come out a really smooth, slow turn on axis, zero pendulum. I had it nailed. And uh, I land the first first landing in the circle <laughs> walk like away and the guy's seconds. like he's like nope like what do you mean he says no you uh you're supposed to do two circles without a break in, in german he's like you did a you you stopped the circle i'm like no well i that's how i exit like he says nope he says uh because he knew like i had 200 flights he says can't can't show me what you can do so i had to so that was a uh, i lost a so-called joker and you get you get three flight you get you get to do one repeat flight on your solar license so so i had to relearn my double circle without break <laughs> slowing it down yeah take it easy and uh, yeah one of the downsides of being self-taught <laughs> learning so by doing maybe maybe you maybe you just answered this but a question i ask pretty much everybody because I, I think it's enlightening. Uh, if you could go back, usually I say 50-hour self, but with you, I'm going to say 100 because you said you kind of had – you maybe had about 100 flights. Well, but that wouldn't be 100 hours. That's a 50-hour self, yeah. Okay. So what would you change? If you could go back to that that fill then, um, oh, you know, oh. is there advice that yeah. you wish you would have taken or, or is there something you wish you would have done differently from that point forward? Um, I know that, um, I was, I was kind of overconfident 
internally like I didn't probably display that but I was just super quietly confident um, I remember thinking I'd done 50 launches and 50 landings that were that were textbook like I never had a problem I'd do these flights I wasn't doing big long thermal flights or anything but but everything went from from the very first flight was was absolutely fine I don't think I had a uh, a start abort you know maybe one <laughs> I don't can't remember that. I just remember that they were all perfect. Everything and then out. things went kind of downhill from there. <laughs> so I would say, you know, talking to myself, then I'd give myself a little slap and say, "Dude, you know nothing. You've got fifty flights is 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 nothing. It starts here." Um, and uh, some more always get some advice. Like, um, yeah, just have people around you that that you can talk to people watching you fly people to um to give you that good advice that 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 may save your life mm. what about being receptive to advice at that stage you know i think that that you know when you're overconfident that can be kind of hard is it, do you remember do you think you would have been receptive yeah good question um I hope so. I think I just um, I, I hear think this I took, from instructors a yeah, lot that you know yeah. there there are a lot of people that are just earmuffs. You know they they'll nod their head, but they'll tell you about how great they're doing, and they're not really taking it in. Yeah, yeah. No one's actually sat me on my bum and said, "Phil, you need to." Yeah, and I'm not saying you. I'm not saying you necessarily. Um, yeah, but I'm wondering. Like, I'm wondering whether they whether there were whether episodes in my past where people. Well, like, should have oh said something and didn't like that yeah. clown. There. I'm thinking specifically of me. Here. <laughs> yeah, what is he doing? Yeah, uh, it is. It is definitely um, a problem that I see with with students with with good students that they they think they've got it all dialed in, but they um, they they don't, yeah. and and they're they're setting themselves up for. A, for full and it's up to yeah i mean as an instructor i i try to highlight as much as i i can as well as i as best i can to the, the situations and, and sit down and explain the situations and what can what can possibly go wrong uh where someone kind of is in a in a hairy situation that they didn't realize you know how how close they were to having something really serious happen. Mm. So, um, yeah, I wish there was, you know, a bit more of that in my in my past. Mm. Um, yeah, Phil, th thirteen months ago, uh, that's a good transition. Uh, thirteen months ago, you had an an incident that uh, I think people can really learn from. And you know, we've we've talked about accidents a lot on the show, so we don't need to go to the dark side of this, but. Um, I, I think it, it, it is, it provides for good learning because it was one of these things that was, was, it, it wasn't like you guys were flying in rowdy conditions. It wasn't like you guys were pushing the envelope. It wasn't like you guys, you know, it was one of these like snake in the grass came out and bit your ass and, uh, and almost like for no fault, but there was, you know, takes through it. Yeah. How about that? Huh? talk about uh i'm not going to say uh it wasn't an 
a life-changing experience mentally, but certainly physically, um, you go to work one day and two weeks later you leave the hospital and two months later you, uh, you come home for the first time. Like you go to work one day and you come home two months later, like life just bang. It's like life just turns left. Whoa. Um, yeah, and it can happen that quickly. And, uh, you know, I suppose I, I, I do have that reputation now, in, in, at least in Zermatt, because of the things I've, I've done. I fly the big triangles and I fly a bit of acro and I fly some comps and, and I probably fly more solo flights apart from Chris than, than anybody else. So um, everyone in Zermatt was like, no, couldn't be, not Phil, how could this happen? You know, how could this happen to Phil? And that, that was tough. It was tough to digest as well. And, and you know, you, you kind of, your reputation is a little bit in tatters. It's not, but it, it is. You in feel a, in like a way. it is. Yeah. yeah. God, I've let everyone down. Mm. Um, here I am kind of championing this sport as being incredibly safe as long as you, you build up your experience slowly and, and um you get a breadth of experience and then suddenly this happens and it's yeah so how did it happen um i'm flying tandem in uh in autumn conditions are very light we're on a south facing slope to get the only thermals that that are around uh fortunately for us you know we thermal well i was thermaling christmas day on in 2000 and um 16 which is crazy um so yeah zermatt zermatt gets good lift uh, probably longer than most places but um still conditions are, are nice they're gentle they're light but involves flying uh and soaring close to a steep rocky slope and i'm following my friend and business partner in in his tandem um we're both flying with the right wing tip to the slope. He turns out um, to fly fly back. I follow him, so we're both left wing tips to slope, and then he turns he turns back in to the slope. I fly a little further, and it's not a big area, but the timing is such that that we both turn out away from the slope together. So we're both turning back towards the slope um, to, to get the lift. And it's at that point where there's this little hesitancy. And I asked him about it and uh, he, he said the same thing. There was a little bit of this. What are you going to do? Do I, do I turn left or right, left or right? And, and it's like bumping into someone in the street, an empty street. Uh, that can happen. You just, oh, it's embarrassing. Boom, you chest bump someone accidentally and you move on on a crowded street it's never going to happen because everyone kind of separates and and yes there are obviously right-of-way rules in flying as in lots of things and um the the combination of our relative positions to the hill to each other just put us in a situation where that wasn't 100% clear. And paragliding, especially ridge soaring, is a lot about 
keeping eye contact and and we had the eye contact, see each other plainly, but we had this little hesitancy and one and a half seconds of hesitancy when you got two flight two gliders closing at a closing speed of seventy kilometers an hour, suddenly all of your all of your wiggle room is gone. And you can just hear me I I filmed it. I filmed the uh, the accident and uh, you can hear me swear and just bury the brake and uh had to bury the left brake to to fly out away from the hill. Um my my colleague he felt like if he turned at that point away from the hill to give me right away, um he would have hit me for sure. So that such was the position of our glider. So he went super close to the hill as 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 close as he could go to the hill. And I smashed the brake, spun the glider, looked up, I'm like, got this, I can stabilize this. And uh within like two to three seconds, I was, I I looked down, the ground came up, was like, nope, I'm I'm done, smashed, I buried both brakes to kind of it's kind of flare, I suppose, as best I could do. And uh and incredibly landed on a super steep um slope with flat rocks and grass, tufts of grass. The glider held. I don't know whether the glider held us, but we didn't slide. Um we were in a kind of a a flat bottomed or a steep couloir uh between cliffs and rock outcrops and it it's uh it's just a fate that fortunately put me there rather than somewhere else mm-hmm. and uh and fortunately flying in zermatt having air zermatt uh, next next to our landing and 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 friends phoning them from the air it was probably less than 20 minutes before i was in heli heading to inselspital in Bern, and that's probably that's what Saved my life, I guess. Whew. Yeah. How <laughs> life changes from one second to the next. The the question that lingers is is yeah. How to um it's easy to say, well, stay further away, be more conservative. That's that's true. But to um how to avoid those that that exact situation being exactly far enough apart and exactly positioned so that it brings that level of doubt as to whether to go left or right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, um, yeah, the, the single takeout from that is 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 uh, on a ridge, on ridge soaring, it's it's almost it's more critical than flying over a hundred people in a gaggle, you know. You know what to expect. You know what to expect in a gaggle unless someone does something stupid. You know, in a gaggle, everyone's turning the right the same way. People behind, behind, below you may climb quicker than you. Watch them. Yeah. Someone gonna A good pilot's going to turn in because he's core in the thermal. That's okay. Yeah. Let it happen. Find your slot. But, um, uh, yeah, flying with friends. Yeah. Uh, where you're going back and forth on a, on a ridge. There's always that eye contact that you that's required when you're pulling out from right away into not right away. Leave room. Make sure you got eye contact and and really be conservative. Yeah. 
and obviously uh, my friend and I weren't or circumstances conspired to yeah to produce that situation so here we are 13 months later um you're flying really well in a comp uh, it's rehab yeah <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure um but i mean they what can you teach us about you know coming back from something like that is it was it we were kind of talking before we started recording it because it wasn't like you guys were you know, it wasn't like you were being stupid. It wasn't like you made a mistake. I mean, you made a okay. You guys made a mistake, but it was like a complacency thing. It was like just I, this weird. I can't teach you much about how yeah. to avoid that accident. No, I mean, the, it's just cool. be it's, super aware of complacency. How do you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's a it's oxymoron. You can't. Yeah, you, right. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, be aware of complacency. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't even think we need to say any more about that. It's just great that people. It's another reminder that you know, on those mellow days, is when we really got to be heads up. But, but um, I'm thinking more like the mental side. You know, just was it, was it the first time you flew again? Was it scary? Was it nervous? Where did you find you were in a different headspace than you ever were before in your lifetime of flight? Or was it like God? Damn it! Thank God I'm back. <laughs> I get to do this again. Uh, I was uh, I was definitely nervous on the start. I, I bought a so I bought a lightweight school wing. I needed to buy one uh, anyway, so I just bought two. And uh, I thought this is my you know I need something that's super easy to start. Doesn't not too fast. Um, uh, but I want to fly, and I didn't have anything in my 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 current quiver of gliders that suited that. And I thought, no. And I, no and, uh, ENAs in your current quiver. <laughs> strangely enough. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, uh, as a result of the accident, um, I have some nerve damage, which uh, is may or may not fully re re recover, but it's resulted in some limited movement in my left foot. So, uh, that that means I I just can't run very fast, <laughs> and uh, so I was nervous about how I was going to be able to take off. And it was six months and one week after I after the accident that that I was on uh, I was on Rotorn, so I was in Zermatt, and um, I had a perfectly groomed snow covered takeoff, which gave me lots of confidence. Had an easy wing. I had about five k front wind. Like conditions were conditions were perfect. So, um, and uh, yeah, I was I was nervous at the start. Um, not about having an accident. I was nervous about um, how I was going to feel. I didn't know how I was going to feel. You know, just talk of talking with psychologists, psychiatrists in in rehab. Um, they're super um, aware of post-traumatic stress and they were saying, you know, don't be surprised after six months or 12 months or that suddenly um, it hits you and, you know, touch wood till now, um, mentally things have been going just, just great, just fine. Mm -hmm. So I was nervous about the takeoff, but um, as soon as I pulled the wing up, um that just the 
the tension on the carabine has lifted the the lifting off enabled me to run as almost as fast or with with minimal limp um off the mountain uh much easier than what i expected so i was i was super happy that i was to be back in the air and uh i was supposed to fly down and um i think was it that flight even i was supposed to fly down and land because um my my girlfriend was a student at the time um and maybe one or two others were up there and i was supposed to fly down and, and then and then get on the radio talking down and uh, it was thermic and i could actually hang out so i was i was thermaling on my little jomo lightweight school wing woo <laughs> and uh so i radioed the to the start and said um send a student send a nook and uh so she launched and uh and we flew wingtip to wingtip which was which was very romantic and, mm. and very healing and and after all we'd been through together that was a that was a big deal that was a, a huge milestone mm. in the whole rehabilitation physically and mentally to to um to be in the air and then and then to fly with with this person who who's just been with me through this journey mm. um yeah thanks anuk i love you that's a great place to uh i think that's a beautiful place to end because otherwise i'm gonna start crying so um phil thanks man i i really appreciate it there's uh some great lessons there and uh, I guess we got one more day of this awesome comp, so I look forward to flying with you and uh, getting getting in the air with you in Zermatt. I look forward to having you Please show me around that visit. place a little round. Yeah. But uh, thank you very much. Gavin, it's been a pleasure and an honor. I look forward to flying with you a lot in the future. Cheers, Cheers. mate. Cool. If you got something out of this, uh, listening to Cloud-Based Mayhem, all we ask for is a buck a show. Uh, this is a listener-supported podcast, and uh, it will be free. It will always be free. I love doing it. But as you can imagine, it is a lot of work, and it is very time-consuming, and uh, and very time-consuming for our editor. Shout out here to Miles Connolly. Just a total Jedi with all this stuff. And you couldn't do it without him. But uh, if you got something out of it, kind of treat it like a magazine subscription or something. And all we ask for, like it says, buck a show, you can do that through cloudbasedmayhem.com. You'll find the links on there to support it one off through PayPal. Or you can sign up to be a regular supporter where you can kind of set it and forget it and be rewarded for doing so through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. We really, really, really appreciate it. It makes all this feasible. Thank you so much. Again, happy holidays. And we'll see you on the next show. Cheers. Cheers.